Hello, welcome back to another episode of Dilettantry. Hope you're doing well today. My name is Sean Zabashi. Um, I'm a little worried that that last episode got a little boring and a little dry at the end there. Um, hopefully I can make it up to you with this one, because in my opinion, this is where it really starts to get interesting. First, I'm going to look at the development of the Greek alphabet, and then I'm going to bring in McLuhan's ideas, his thoughts on the alphabet and all the other scripts I've been talking about, as well as oral societies, societies without writing. I started out a few episodes ago with that myth from Plato about the god Thuth or Thoth and the invention of writing in Egypt. Um, there's another myth from Greece that McLuhan repeatedly references. There's a myth that tells of King Cadmus, a Phoenician prince and the founder of the Greek city of Thebes, who many ancient Greeks, such as Herodotus, credit for introducing the Phoenician script, the phonetic alphabet, to Greece. At one point, Cadmus slays a dragon and the goddess Athena instructs him to sow the dragon's teeth into the ground. Armed men spring up from where the teeth had been sown. McLuhan uses this as a mythic representation of the revolutionary importance of the phonetic alphabet. He thinks that not only writing, but specifically the phonetic alphabet, was integral to shifting the sense ratios by putting more stress on the visual, even more stress than just writing with ideographs or logographs. I've already mentioned phoneticism, the earliest known example of which was developed in Mesopotamia. I mentioned it in episode 1.3, where there was that inscription found of two pictographs for Lord Wind, the god, and one of the pictographs was of an arrow, used phonetically to mean life. Phonetic alphabets consist of signs that relate to sound only. Ideographs and logographs are signs that relate to meaning. There's some flexibility on the definition of the phonetic alphabet. Many refer to consonantal abjads and alphasyllabaric abugidas as phonetic alphabets, since they have signs that refer to sound, not meaning. However, in both of these systems, vowels are secondary or non-existent or optional. When McLuhan writes about phonetic alphabets, he refers primarily to scripts in which consonants and vowels are separate and have equal weight, like the Latin alphabet we use for English. He thinks this is very important. Um, so I'm going to do the same and use his definition, but many, or perhaps most, don't. They equate the alphabet to phoneticism. Archaeological evidence of any of the early phonetic alphabets is hard to find since most of the writing was done on papyrus, which is obviously much more prone to decomposition than rock inscriptions, for example. Where exactly the primordial alphabet soup was located is controversial, but it seems like the alphabet was birthed somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula or Canaan. The Sinai Peninsula is the Asian part of Egypt, uh, to the east of the Suez Canal. Canaan is the historical term for the area of modern-day Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria. The earliest archaeological evidence reveals a script that's either called Proto-Sinaitic or Proto-Canaanite, depending on where the person speaking believes it first originated. The first discovery of this script was in 1905 in Sinai, the archaeologist William Flinders Petrie discovered ten inscriptions at a mountain that houses the ruins of a temple built for worshipping the Egyptian goddess Hathor, or the Canaanite equivalent, Asherah. The mountain also used to be a turquoise mine. These inscriptions were dated to between 1850 and 1550 BCE. If the early date is correct, that means that current archaeological evidence would point to the alphabet originating in Egypt, but if the later date is correct, that means that the evidence would point to the alphabet originating in Canaan, because there's another alphabet, the Ugaritic alphabet, that something comes from cuneiform and its evolution from ideographs to phonographs. 
um, that that's found in Canaan. But as with most things this ancient and important, there's lots of debate on whether it does originate from cuneiform or not. Evidence of the Ugaritic alphabet was discovered in Ras Shamra in Syria in 1928. It has 30 letters. Claude Hegege, the French linguist, thinks this is the first alphabet and makes some interesting remarks. He says that, quote, writing is a linguistic analysis at various degrees of consciousness, unquote. This is a fancy way of saying that the type of writing developed to fit a language isn't a random process. It's something that depends on the spoken language. The inventors of a script, probably more unconsciously than consciously, since scripts usually form over a long period of time, perform what can be called a linguistic analysis by developing a script shaped to that language. Hegege says that it's no accident that the alphabet was invented by those who spoke a Semitic language. He uses the example of Chinese ideograms and says that since Old Chinese was a monosyllabic language, they could, quote, end written segmentation at the level of the word, unquote. Because that's another way of thinking about ideograms and logograms and pictograms. The fundamental unit is the word, not the letter. They don't break down language into the letter, like phonetic alphabet scripts. The unconscious linguistic analysis of the Chinese speakers came to the conclusion that ideograms were a pretty good way of representing the language. But with Semitic languages, the words are often multisyllabic and have grammar rules that depend on changing words slightly, like changing one vowel to pluralize, or one consonant to alter the tense of a verb, that kind of thing. Like run versus ran, to use an English example. So if one were, unconsciously or consciously, doing a linguistic analysis relating how ideographic or logographic scripts work with Semitic languages, one would probably come to the conclusion that having a writing system not based at the level of the word, but on the level of the sound, the phoneme as it's called, uh, that would be optimal. And writing systems based on the level of the sound, of course, are alphabets. But let's jump back to Proto-Sinaitic. Hegege thinks that the first alphabet should be called Proto-Canaanite, since it originated in Canaan, but others disagree, thinking it comes from Sinai. So that archaeologist had found ten inscriptions at that mountain, the turquoise mine. Subsequent expeditions to Sinai revealed more inscriptions, bringing the total to 40. It's a script with 27 to 29 characters, so much fewer than cuneiform and hieroglyphics and Chinese writing. That was one of the benefits of purely phonographic scripts, scripts that only deal with sound. You need far fewer characters, meaning that people can learn it much easier. Nobody knows the language or languages that the script was for, but it seems to be a Semitic language, likely a Canaanite dialect. Even though the specific language of the script is unknown, some of it has been deciphered, and the phoneticism of most of the characters can be determined with reasonable certainty. Frank Simons says it's likely the proto-Sinaitic characters come from Egyptian hieroglyphics and Egyptian hieratic, the cursive form of Egyptian writing. Egyptians isolated consonants, but didn't use them as the basis of a writing system. Remember the Narmer palette from last episode and the two characters that represented consonants? I'm guessing that these isolated consonants were the aspect of hieroglyphics that the proto-Sinaitic script took on in Simons' hypothesis. Alright, so are you ready for some more vocabulary? This early form of alphabet was likely a pictographic acrophonic script. Pictographic acrophonic. To explain what that means, it's easiest to use an example. The script would have a pictograph that represents a house, for example. That's the pictographic part. The acrophonic part is that the pictograph did not mean house. Instead, it's a phonetic representation of the first letter for house. 
The Canaanite word for house is bet, B-E-T, um, but the pictograph did not mean house. It represented the first letter, the consonant of the word house, B. It would be like in English if instead of the letters A, B, C, we had a pictograph of an apple, then a pictograph of a ball, then a pictograph of a cat. The 27 to 29 characters were reduced to 22 in the 13th century BCE. In the 13th century, it was still pictographic enough to allow for writing in many directions. You could write left to right, right to left, vertically, even in Bustrophodon style, which means writing the way you mow a lawn. Right to left on one line, then left to right on the next, then right to left, and so on. Vertical Bustrophodon was also allowed. There was also flexibility when it came to the characters themselves, what's called the stances of the letters. Letters could be written as a mirror image, or upside down, or whatever, and it would still be recognized as that letter. At some point in the middle of the 11th century BCE, the stances of the letters became fixed. Vertical writing, as well as writing from left to right, was eliminated. These changes lead most scholars to start referring to the script as Phoenician, rather than Proto-Canonite or Proto-Sinaitic. The Phoenician Empire was a thalassocracy, a society that was largely seafaring, and was based in the Levant, like Lebanon, but was spread through much of the Mediterranean at its height. Cursive Phoenician began to develop starting around 1000 BCE, and around the middle of the 8th century BCE, the Phoenician script had become uniform, with two different styles, cursive for writing quickly or casually on material that permitted quick writing, like papyrus, and lapidary, which is the term for a writing style that's engraved into something like stone. Obviously, engraving letters into stone and writing on papyrus are very different activities, so different styles emerge. Martin makes the point that the type of writing found throughout history says something. Cursive writing shows a culture used to writing, a culture where writing is common, whereas lapidary writing shows a desire for permanence. The Phoenicians, then, seem to have both these attributes. During the 9th century BCE, the Hebrew script diverged from the Phoenician and became unique. And during the 8th century BCE, the Aramaic script did the same. The Achaemenid Empire, also called the First Persian Empire, founded by Cyrus the Great, conquered all existing Mesopotamian empires in the latter half of the 6th century BCE. Eventually, the Achaemenid Empire spread from Eastern Europe to the Indus Valley. The empire adopted the Aramaic script and language for all written communication. It was kind of like their official language, or a lingua franca, that connected various linguistic groups. Like today, how a German speaker and a Japanese speaker might both know a bit of English and are able to communicate with it. The expanse of the Persian Empire spread the phonetic script to Asia Minor, to Pakistan and northern India, and inspired the writing systems of those in Central and Northern Asia, like the Uyghurs, Mongols, and Kalmuks, and the Brahmi script of India. From India, due in large part to the spread of Buddhism, phonetic writing spread to Southeast Asia, to the Philippines, maybe even influencing the creation of the Japanese Kana script, that syllabary. The consonant system also spread to the Arabian Peninsula and Abyssinia, modern-day Ethiopia. Um, I talked about their script in the previous episode, the Ge'ez script. The people on the Syro-Mesopotamian edge of the Arabian Peninsula, most notably Petra in Jordan, adopted this transitional script called Nabataean, which turned into Arabic script, which was widely dispersed in the Muslim conquests of the Umayyads in the late 600s and early 700s CE, competing with the Coptic script of Egypt, the Berber of North Africa, and the Hebrew used by the Jews. Written Arabic spread as far as Spain, Persia, Afghanistan, China, India, Malaysia, and some of Sub-Saharan Africa. In short, the alphabet was conquering the world. McLuhan makes the interesting point that 
The alphabet seems to be a one-way process. Linguistic groups that previously used a non-alphabetic script seem to adopt an alphabetic one quite often, but linguistic groups with an alphabetic form of writing never adopt a non-alphabetic form of writing. Or at least McClune claims that has never happened. There might be a counterexample. But the main point is that it's very uncommon, and the alphabet spread with remarkable speed from only one birthplace. I'll post a chart that shows the development of the alphabet with the sources. Hopefully I'll make it a little bit clearer. Consonantal writing led to more widespread literacy because phonetic scripts had much fewer symbols than logographic or pictographic scripts, and therefore was easier to learn. It also led to the adoption of religions tied to books, or religions of the book, like the Abrahamic faiths. To quote Henri Jean Martin, quote, When the written word and the divine word eventually joined forces, they encouraged religions in which an invisible God was known by his word alone, unquote. It's interesting, you can kind of see the growing influence of writing by just looking at the beginnings of the holy books of the major Abrahamic faiths. I don't mean this in any way to be rigorous or scientific, just illustrative. The Old Testament begins with, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. There's no mention of the written word because the Old Testament was orally transmitted through generations before being committed to writing. Also, if you keep looking at the beginning of the books of the Old Testament, it often highlights speech. Leviticus begins, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. The book of Numbers begins, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. Deuteronomy begins, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel. A lot of the other Old Testament books start with narrative or genealogy. The beginning of the book of Ezra does mention writing, and our friend Cyrus the Great, saying, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. Maybe that's illustrative of uh, Cyrus's influence on the spread of the written word. But if we look at the New Testament... It starts out with the four Gospels, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who describe Jesus' life and teachings. Matthew starts by listing the male lineage of Jesus, but it starts by saying, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, yada yada yada, the book of genealogy. Mark starts, in the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. The first sentence of Luke begins with the narrator promising, write an orderly account. And I'm sure many even non-religious people have heard the beginning of the Gospel of John in the Bible. This one doesn't refer to writing, only the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then, if we look at Islam, the other major Abrahamic religion, and the last one to appear in history, you really start to see how the written Word was seeping into people's lives more. The first chapter, or surah, of the Quran is a few poetic lines praising God, but the second surah is interesting for our purposes. The second sentence mentions that the Quran is a book. This is the book in which there is no doubt a guide for the righteous. But what's really interesting is the first line before the first sentence. There are three Arabic letters written together like a word, but each letter is pronounced individually. Elif, Lam, Mim. No, not that kind of meme. Muhammad spoke to the Lord, but he was not a meme lord. But what do these letters mean? It would be like in English. It would be like if an English religious book, like the Book of Mormon, started a chapter with the letters B-H-M without any explanation. In the Quran, these letters are an example of what's called the Mukata'at, 
in English meaning something like the disconnected letters or the mysterious letters. These seemingly random letters are found at the beginning of 29 out of the 114 surahs of the Quran. They're always a combination of between 1 and 5 Arabic letters. Weird, right? Well, it turns out nobody knows the original meaning of these letters. Islamic scholars generally think that they are abbreviations, either for names of God, qualities of God, names of the relevant chapter, or qualities of the chapter, but there are tons of theories. It's a super cool mystery in my opinion, and it also maybe shows the growing reliance on writing as opposed to speech. As a final example of the shift from the oral to the literate, let's look at the first words revealed to Muhammad. The first words revealed to Muhammad were by the angel Gabriel when Muhammad was sleeping in a cave. The first word is read. Read, O Muhammad, in the name of your Lord who created. He created man from a clot. Read, and your Lord is the most honorable who taught with the pen. Again, I'm not quoting these books to prove anything, but I, I do think it could be illustrative. Um, let's take a step back and consider just how monumental a step in human cognition the consonantal abjad alphabet was, with a quote from Martin. Quote, One cannot help but be struck by the degree of abstraction of a consonantal system that isolates and represents only the roots of words, is contrary to the spirit of traditional ideographic procedures and their strictly concrete corresponding forms of thought. As one glance at the mathematical reasoning of the Mesopotamian sages will show, a genuine mental revolution took place when that degree of abstraction was achieved and writing was directly attached to speech. Unquote. Martin goes on to say this happened with the Phoenicians because their language was not for religious reasons, but purely for business and long-term communication. There's that word again, abstract. But think about it, with ideographic systems, what is transcribed is the meaning of the spoken word. With consonantal systems, what is transcribed is the sound of words. This makes writing more neutral. With ideographic or logographic or pictographic writing systems, where sign represents meaning, not sound, the writing is very much connected to the language spoken to the people writing. Or maybe it's better to describe it how I did earlier, that these scripts have their own internal logic themselves. But with phonetic scripts, someone can talk to someone who is speaking a language they don't understand and transcribe the noises that they're making. Apparently, one of the first uses of the Greek alphabet was this, to transcribe the languages of people in modern-day Turkey. By representing sound, the script is more neutral because you don't even have to know what the sound means when you transcribe it. Additionally, as I mentioned, phonetic alphabets also dramatically reduced the number of signs needed from hundreds of signs to dozens, meaning that it was easier for people to learn to write and also harder for institutions to hoard the skill of writing. In Egypt and Mesopotamia, there were people trained to be scribes, often connected to the rulers. Writing was power. So before I started talking about Abrahamic religious texts, I did a little summary about how the alphabet conquered the world. However, I left out a very important part, how the Phoenician script made its way to Greece. This is what McLuhan is most concerned with. Let's rewind a bit and look at Greece and the surrounding Aegean Sea. In the previous episode, when I went over various writing systems developed across the world, I also ignored Greece. Between 2800 and 1200 BCE, there was an evolution of at least three scripts. On the island of Crete and surrounding islands, what is considered the first known advanced civilization of Europe was born. They were called the Minoans, and they flourished for a thousand years between 2600 and 1600 BCE, before it was overrun by the Mycenaeans of mainland Greece. The Minoans developed what is known as Cretan hieroglyphic writing. 
starting around 2000 BCE and lasting until 1650 BCE. It's thought that the Minoan bureaucracy used this for accounting and keeping records, but these are only assumptions because it is yet to be deciphered. Around 1800 BCE, another script developed called Linear A, also indeciphered, made of hundreds of symbols believed to be ideographic, logographic, and syllabic, as well as symbols for numbers. And then, in 1450 BCE, Linear A was replaced with, take a guess, Linear B, which was used until 1200 BCE. Linear B has been deciphered around the middle of the 20th century by this guy named Michael Ventris. It shares a lot of syllabic signs in common with Linear A, but not many of its logographs. Around 80% of Linear A's logographs are not found in Linear B. Tablets with Linear B have been found in Crete, as well as on the Greek mainland. It's thought that the hieroglyphics and Linear A were used for the original Cretan language, while Linear B is a syllabic writing system used for the earliest known Greek dialect, Mycenaean Greek. So it's likely that when the mainland Greeks invaded Crete, they adapted Cretan writing to fit their language. There's also evidence of an undeciphered written language of Cyprus that appears similar to Cretan, eventually morphing into a syllabary that lasted until the 3rd century BCE. The fact that Mycenaean Greeks had to adapt Cretan writing to their language caused some problems. It was a syllabary, one sign referring to one syllable. But with the syllabary, and perhaps with syllabaries in general, the words written often only approximated the phoneticism, the sound, of a given word. The Mycenaeans, for example, had a word for woodcutter, drutamoi, which, when written with this syllabary, if pronounced phonetically, would sound like durutumo. This is because syllabaries offer less flexibility than phonetic scripts with individual consonants and vowels. Just a quick note I want to make, it's not super relevant here because the Mycenaeans are adapting another writing system to their own language, but I don't know where else in this episode to mention it, and it's very interesting. There's, there's a general tension between scripts and pronunciation, especially with ideographs, logographs, and syllabaries. Our Latin alphabet, for example, is a lot more flexible than other forms of writing. There's a tension because on one hand, pronunciations evolve, which leads to scripts fitting less well with the new pronunciations, because the scripts were conceived to fit outdated pronunciations. But scripts can also offer stability to a language, because pronunciations are partly informed by the script. Anyways, in around 1200 BCE, the Mycenaean civilization began to collapse, ushering in what's known as the Greek Dark Ages for about 200 years. This period is also called the Homeric Age, or the Geometric Period, and is part of the larger Late Bronze Age Collapse, since a similar Dark Age occurred in Asia Minor, the Near East, North Africa, the Balkans, and the Caucasus. The Greeks emerged from this darkness with a new writing system. As you might have guessed from the Cadmos myth, the script they borrowed from for this new writing system was Phoenician, or Proto-Canaanite. The alphabet has only one source, as far as I can tell. The earliest evidence of Phoenician comes from inscriptions in the Lebanese city of Byblos, which is still a city continuously inhabited since 500 BCE, 7,000 years, which is super crazy. There's this guy named Sanchuniathon, who says it was built as the first Phoenician city by the god Kronos. Time for a little digression, because Sanchuniathon is pretty crazy himself. There was somebody named Eusebius of Caesarea, who lived during the late 3rd century and early 4th century CE, who was a prolific Christian writer. He wrote 15 books called Preparatio Evangelica, or Preparation for the Gospel, which attempted to prove the supremacy of Christianity over every other religion and philosophy, and was meant to be an introduction to Christianity for pagans. 
apparently they were supposed to read 15 books for an introduction. So I don't know how successful the books were in converting anyone. This book quoted heavily from the lost works of Philo of Byblos. Yes, that Byblos I just mentioned, a guy who lived in the late first century to the early second century. In fact, Preparatio Evangelica quoted so heavily from Philo of Byblos's work of Phoenician history that the excerpts have been assembled into their own work. And this work of Philo of Byblos contains Phoenician mythology, supposedly based on the writings of Sanchuniathon, three works of his that otherwise would have been lost to time. Sanchuniathon himself says that his work comes from mystical inscriptions on the pillars of Phoenician temples that says that gods were originally human beings who after their death were worshipped, turned into gods, and their lowly mortal status was obscured by allegory and myth. Of course, there's debate over whether Sanchuniathon was real or not, but I just love learning about historical figures that were very nearly lost to time but just hung on. Like, like that quote, they say you die twice, once when you stop breathing, and again when somebody says your name for the last time. I like learning about near-death experiences of the latter kind of death. Names, figures, almost lost to history, but resuscitated when somebody reads their name from some dusty manuscript and then records it again. And Sanchuniathon is one of those figures, if he existed, who heroically clung on, who was on life support by the pages of parchment of early scholars, and somehow recovered to be on Wikipedia, accessible to anyone with Wi-Fi. What a comeback. Anyways, there are inscriptions of Phoenician writing found in Byblos. Now, Byblos was in Canaan, or Phoenicia, and in Phoenicia at the time, there were two scripts, still undeciphered today. There was the pseudo-hieroglyphic script, also known as the Byblos syllabary, which had 114 characters, and there was a script I talked about earlier, known as either the Proto-Sinaitic or the Proto-Canaanite script, consisting of around 40 characters. So, there are questions about when exactly the Greeks took on the alphabet. The earliest found inscriptions of the Greek alphabet date to the 8th century BCE on vases, shards of pottery, and inscriptions on rock. But there's lots of debate over whether this was around the time they adopted it, or if they adopted an earlier form of Phoenician script in the centuries before, or if they adopted the Proto-Canaanite script three centuries before. Some think that the ancient Greek script was based on the Constantinople Abjad script of the Phoenicians, but Greek wasn't a great fit for the Phoenician script as it was, so it had to be modified. This led to the invention of something that Marshall McLuhan thinks might be one of the most important inventions in history, vowels. Or, rather, vowels of an equivalent level as consonants, not as an abugida. This came about partly because many of the consonant sounds used in the Middle East were not used in Greek, or not used as much or in the same way in Greek, so the underused signs were transformed into signs for Greek vowels. Not all the vowels came about this way, others were invented or derived from elsewhere. The Greek script used 22 letters from Phoenician, and then added 5 more, Upsilon, Phi, Chi, Psi, and Omega. The order of the letters, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, etc., is pretty much identical to the order of the Phoenician letters. Also, the Greek names of the letters don't mean anything in Greek besides the letter, but most of the Semitic names for the letters are also words. The early examples of Greek writing show that style and form varied with geography. That thing I mentioned earlier when talking about the Proto-Canaanite script was true with Greek too. Not only was the form varied, but the direction also varied. There's examples of early Greek writing that goes left to right, right to left, as well as horizontal boustrophedon, like a lawnmower. This is interesting because although the first Greek inscriptions we have date to the 8th century BCE, Phoenician writing at that time was only right to left. They'd stopped writing Boustrophedon around 1050 BCE. 
Another thing that was varied in the early Greek was the letters. They didn't have a fixed form, something that is often found with pictographs and ideographs, as well as phonetic scripts still affected by those modes of writing they evolved from. For example, letters were written backwards, forwards, upside down, right ways up, etc. All these regional variances lasted until about the 4th century BCE, when the Ionian script was universalized across Greece. According to Joseph Nava, the early examples of Greek writing are also less cursive than 8th and even 9th century BCE Phoenician letters. This suggests that maybe the Greeks adopted the Phoenician script earlier, when they hadn't developed a cursive style yet. As a solution to these contradictions, Nava suggests the possibility that the Greeks inherited the Western Semitic script around 1100 BCE, when it was still proto-Canaanite, when its characters were still evolving from pictograms to phonograms, from flexible to fixed, from multi-directional to linear. But all this is really beside the point, just some interesting questions. The main takeaway is that literacy among the Greeks was spreading fast with the aid of this new alphabet. In about 650 BCE, for the first time in Greece, the law was put into writing and cities made the laws visible, inscribed on monuments for all to see, more to assert their existence rather than be read. Symbolic, not didactic. This touches on something interesting about writing in general, and how it affects society. Looking at societies adopting writing makes clear something I hadn't really thought of before, the difference between custom and law. In societies without writing, it doesn't really make sense to memorize a complicated legal system, or even have laws in general, really. Oral societies are organized and maintained, but mostly on custom. Custom is a really interesting thing. It kind of just appears in a group without warning. It's not like a person or a council thinks for a while and then decrees a custom. Thou shalt not wear thy hat inside. No, customs usually have a more nebulous birth date and seemingly a collective creator. Due to this nebulousness, customs can evolve as their culture evolves. I mean, it's obviously not the easiest thing in the world. I'm sure you can think of some customs in our world today that seem very hard to change, but gradually they do. But law has a creator or creators who consciously think and then decree it. It has a definite birth date, and it's almost always written. Due to the relative fixity of writing compared to speech, laws can organically evolve with the culture. They can only be replaced by another law through a more formal process. Very interesting. I'd love to read more about that and how those generalizations hold up. But back to the spread of Greek literacy. Let's talk about maybe the most influential string of teachers and students in European history. It starts with Socrates, who famously didn't write anything down. His student was Plato, who did write, and used Socrates as his main character. I talked a bit about them already two episodes ago. One of Plato's students was Aristotle, and one of Aristotle's students was Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great diverged from the others and spent most of his life on military conquests. During his imperialism, the Greek alphabet carried an air of intellectual superiority, while the symbols of other writings became tokens of resistance to the besieged. Other peoples, like the Etruscans or the Latins of modern-day Italy, began adopting the Greek phonetic alphabet to their own language. The Etruscans adopted the Greek alphabet, using it mainly for religious purposes, and then the peoples of Italy adopted the Etruscan alphabet to write Latin, sometime around the 7th century BCE. It originally had 20 letters. But Alexander's campaigns had a more influential effect that relates to Greek writing. Although the Greeks had known about papyrus from about 700 BCE, it was not plentiful in Greece, and importing it was too expensive. The Greeks had nothing like paper, a common and inexpensive writing material that everyone could access. Normal Greeks used whatever was available. Pottery fragments, wax tablets, bits of leather or skin, thin plates of lead, gold and silver, 
even one example of snakeskin. But luckily for the Greeks, one of the areas that Alexander conquered was Egypt. Alexander's former bodyguard turned commander, Ptolemy, became ruler of Egypt in 305 BCE, after Alexander's death and about four decades after Plato's death. Under Ptolemy's reign and throughout the three centuries of the Ptolemaic dynasty, papyrus was exported back to Greece, finally giving Greeks an abundant, convenient writing material, which led to increased literacy in writing as well as the first books. Not the Ptolemy, who was Alexander's bodyguard, but his son, also named Ptolemy, the next ruler of Egypt in the Ptolemaic dynasty, ruled over the building of the Library of Alexandria, one of the largest ancient libraries and a cultural hub. Another important invention was paper. This came to Europe much later than papyrus, but I might as well give a brief summary here. The Chinese, using thin wooden boards or strips of bamboo to write on, began writing on textiles like silk. Then in the first century AD, paper was invented. Paper is made of vegetable fibers reduced to a pulp that is then placed in a specific form and dried. Paper spread through Korea, Vietnam, Japan, then reached the Arab world after men allied with the Caliph of Baghdad were imprisoned by the Chinese in the early 8th century and gleaned the secrets of paper production from their imprisonment. Paper making popped up in areas outside of Baghdad, Persia, Armenia, Syria, who exported paper used by the Byzantines. Then papermaking was brought to Egypt, to Morocco. Papermaking reached Europe at the start of the second millennium CE, a little after 1000 CE. Well, we'll get back to paper once we move through history a bit more. The main point is, not only were phonetic alphabets easier for people to learn, these new materials to write on spread the knowledge and ability of literacy as well. Alright, it's probably best if I stop here and split this one into two. I'll continue with what McLuhan thinks about all this in the next episode.